0: Let's turn to that text, Mark 1, and let's bow our heads as we ask for God's help today. Father, the men on the road to Emmaus declared how their hearts burned within them as they met with the Lord Jesus on the road. And our prayer this morning is that our hearts would burn within us as we meet the Lord Jesus in his words. Fill our hearts with confidence us of our sin, and help us to be those who live for his glory alone, amen. On September the 9th, 1971, a new song hit the US charts. It was soon to become the best ever selling solo of the singer's career, and one of the most performed songs in history. It was named the Song of the Century, by the National Music Publishers Association, and it's the music that is played annually every year in New York Times Square as the ball drops on New Year's Eve. The name of the song is Imagine, and the composer John Lennon of The Beatles. The score is haunting, just a handful of chords played on a Steinway piano but it's accompanied by a film which features footage of Lennon and his wife in a park and at their home. The camera moves from deep fog and darkness into their home, above which there is a sign that says, this is not here. And then into the next scene, as he plays a white piano in a darkened room. But it becomes gradually brighter, as if filled with heavenly light, As Ono, his wife, gradually opens the shutters, allowing in the light as the progress of the song moves forward, towards a heaven on earth. Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try, no hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say, I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be one." It was never drafted or written as just a song, more an anthem to capture the hearts for a progressive dream for generations to come. Rolling Stones call it an enduring hymn of solace and promise, a dream of a perfect new world, a manifesto to achieve it, a brotherhood of man. Because this is the great human dream, and don't you long for it, a perfect new world of peace and harmony and unity and freedom and safety, no more division or conflict or pain or suffering or fear, nothing to kill or die for. This dream lies deep In the recesses of our hearts, we long for safety and peace. Yet, this heaven on earth eludes us. Like water in our hands, as soon as we grasp it, it disappears from us. This world is not a place of peace. Since 1945, there have been over 285 wars. America is not a place of peace. One in two marriages end in divorce and there are 47 murders in the US every day. And then we look at our relationships, and we see the brokenness. And then there's death, because no matter how financially secure I may be in my Manhattan penthouse, my money tucked away in an offshore account in the Cayman Islands, my villa in Bermuda, I will one day get sick. And my final home, like yours, is the cemetery. But this morning, we're going to ask the question, what if? What if this great dream of humanity through the ages, this great desire of every human heart, was possible? What if the progressive's dream could be realized, a a perfect new eternal paradise? What if a new age has dawned? What if a new hope is here? What if? There is a new world for us, because Mark's point as we begin a new sermon series this morning is that this is a new dawn. A new kingdom has arrived, a new hope is here. For anybody who trusts in Jesus Christ, it's open to you today. The author is John Mark. He accompanied the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys before going his own way, and almost certainly he wrote this gospel in AD 64, But Mark doesn't begin with Jesus' birth, but with his baptism at the age of 30. As Mark now plunges us in chapter 1, verse 1, into a fast-moving, action-packed story, verse 1 functions as the prologue, and it is momentous. Have a look at 1-1. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The introduction is hugely significant. The implications are way above our pay grade. And just like in an Agatha Christie play or film, you know, all the clues that they're at the very beginning, what Mark does in verse 1 in this prologue is to lace it with all the clues that will tell you what this gospel story is about, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The first Agatha Christie clue comes in the first two words, the beginning. It's a deliberate echo of the opening verses of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, just as the Bible opens with the beginning of the creation, this gospel opens with the beginning of a new creation. It's as big and as seismic as that. We're talking about the beginning of a new creation. The second clue comes in that word gospel. To us, it sounds religious or churchy, but the word gospel in the first century wasn't a religious word, but a political word borrowed from first century imperial Rome. When a new emperor was elected, the imperial announcement would go out from Rome all the way through the empire, from Africa in the south all the way up to Germania in the north, and then over to Britannia in the west. And the announcement would be, Augustus Caesar is Lord. It's the same today as CNN broadcasts the news of the inauguration of the president from Capitol Hill. The Wall Street Journal will announce the gospel the following day. But more than that, the word gospel in the first century implied not just the announcement of a new reign, but with it, victory. So when Harry S. Truman announced on the 14th of August, 1945, that Japan had finally surrendered, the announcement was gospel, and a war-weary America, some of you will remember it, erupted in euphoria and praise, war over, victory secured. And the third clue comes in the identity of this King, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Christ is not a surname, it's a title or If you like a job description. It means the anointed King from God. The press release could not be more significant. This is not the birth of a minor royal or even the election of a president for four years. This is the arrival of God's long-awaited King, the Christ Messiah, a title borrowed from Psalm 2, 2 Samuel 7, the King who has come to deliver His people Defeat God's enemies and triumph over a world of stability and prosperity and peace forever and ever. And as Handel might put it, amen. Yet our problem is our cynicism. We're used to big promises being made. At the primaries, the candidates will say, well, there will be safer borders if you elect me. And... A stronger economy and then better education and a brighter future, but it never really materializes. And I suspect some of us have been Christian for decades and it's all grown old and stale. We see the problems within our family life or community life or church life or national life. And this This kingdom that we bought into decades ago feels old and tired and if we're honest, we begin to wonder, can I really trust it? And is it really worth living wholeheartedly for? That was certainly the question Mark's original readers were asking because Mark is writing against a frightening backdrop to a persecuted church. The emperor is Nero, and his campaign of monstrous cruelty against the city's Christians is just beginning. The great fire of Rome that blazed for seven days, burning 50 to 80 percent of the city, he's blaming it on the Christians. Picture them meeting in the catacombs underneath the city, surrounded by tombs and rats. The death squads and arrest parties are raiding the meetings taking the Christians, sentencing them to death, throwing them out into the Colosseum or the Circus Maximus. And Nero, as you know, even dipped some of these Christians in tar, set them alight as entertainment and candles for his dinner parties with his friends. Is this king worth living for against terror like that? And Mark this morning wants to persuade us Yes. And He's got three great reasons to encourage our hearts and steal us this coming week. Here's the first reason, because this is is the heralded, long-awaited King. Have a look at verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight the paths for Him. Verse 2 is a mixture of three Old Testament texts, Isaiah 40, Exodus 23, and Malachi 3. And it's calling on the people of God's to get ready because God's is coming. And the sign that God is coming to earth would be that one final messenger would arrive, a final herald an eleventh-hour, last-minute wake-up call to the nation to prepare them for the coming judgment, to turn their hearts back to God. The last prophet of the Old Testament was Malachi, and between Malachi and the coming of God in Jesus, there was a 400-year silence. Imagine that from 1622. That's pretty much the time of the Mayflower, isn't it? 1620, silence from 1622 to 2022. A 400-year silence, and the sign that the silence was over would be one last messenger, an Elijah lookalike who would come. For hundreds of years, the Jews waited for this, this Elijah figure to appear, and still today they do. If in April you go to a Jewish house for a Passover meal, you'll sit down for the meal, and did you know there will be an empty chair And an empty place sets, and you'll arrive in April and you'll say, well, who's that for? Is that Uncle uh, Benjamin? Is he sick or something like that? And they'll say, no, 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 that's not for Uncle Benjamin. That's the place of Elijah. We're waiting for Elijah because when he comes, we know that Messiah will then come. And suddenly, as we're trying to get our heads around this and get our breath and think about it, bang, verse 4, suddenly... John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The long wait is over, the final herald is here, the last signpost has arrived, the wake up call has gone off, God is coming to earth. The thing is about the United States Presidents, when POTUS is on the move, you can't miss it. Did you know that his entourage for an overseas visit includes a 1,000, 150 U.S. Secret Service agents, military communication specialists, white hat aides, a doctor, a chef, members of the media. In the cavalcade are 20 cars, police outriders, a Secret Service backup vehicle, counter-assault vehicles, hazardous attack teams, armored SUV communication vehicles, medics, and a fleet of helicopters. Do not mess with the President of the United States of America you can't miss him. Roads are closed. For weeks, the police and Secret Service will be uh, looking into drains and cordoning them off. For days, for weeks, the preparations will go on. And then there will be the drone of Marine One. And then, at last, you will see Air Force One arrive. The secret agents would be ahead, the police outriders, and then the Beast as the president arrives. You can't miss the President of the United States. He's heralded with a cavalcade like that. And just as you can't miss the President of the United States of America, you can't miss the coming of God. He's heralded by the last prophets, John, a warning sign, a signpost. Your God is coming to earth. And Mark leaves us in no doubt that uh, this is the Elijah lookalike. Look at his location. In the wilderness, a huge idea in Mark because it was in the wilderness where the prophets met with God, where the ravens kept Elijah, and where the nation was formed. He's out in the wilderness like Elijah. He's reached the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. This is a prophet reaching the whole nation as hundreds and thousands pour out from the countryside and metropolitan Jerusalem to meet with him, almost national revival. And then in verse 6, his appearance, he wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey, exactly like Elijah in 2 Kings 1.8. It's a positive identity match, and his message, get ready, get ready for judgments, as he turns the hearts of this apostate nation back to God, baptizing them. Preparing them for the coming of God in judgment. Messiah is coming. There's the first reason this king is worth living for. He really is the long awaited, heralded king. But not just that, not just is he heralded by the prophets, second, he's anointed by the Godhead. Anointed, verse 10. Jesus is baptized, and as he comes out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, verse 11, and the voice from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I'm well pleased. This, verse 10, could not be more dramatic. And if a Steven Spielberg or a John Williams with the music track we're trying to capture this moment with great screenplay and amazing John Williams dramatic music, I don't think they could. Jesus is baptized, and as he comes out of the water, the scene could not be more dramatic or momentous as three things happen in quick succession. First, he sees the heavens torn open. And the Greek word is really strong. Literally, Jesus sees heaven ripped open. Second, the Holy Spirit descends on his head like a dove. And then the voice of the Father, you are my son, with you I am well pleased. Well, today is the 70th anniversary of the Queen's accession to the throne 70 years ago. She was crowned in June 1953, but she became queen of England, the Empire, and the Commonwealth on February the 6th, 1952, following the death of her beloved father, George VI. Just before flying out to America to live here, I took one of our children to London. We went to Westminster Abbey. And as you head into Westminster Abbey, on the right, immediately on the right, is a glass screen that most people don't notice. And in the glass screen is a very boring seat, a chair. I explained to one of the children that was with us that that was not any old chair, but the oldest piece of furniture in Britain. It is the coronation chair. And on that seat has sat every single king and queen since Edward II in 1308. It is an incredible thing. You stand there looking at it, and you think it was on that chair that Henry VII was crowned king in 1485. It was on that chair that Henry VIII was crowned king in 1509. On that chair, Elizabeth I crowned Queen of England In 1558, in the coronation service, the most secret moment on that chair as the new sovereign sits in the abbey is what is called the anointing. And the anointing happens before the investiture and crowning. The archbishop takes oil from the ampulla into the spoon, and he anoints the sovereign's head, breast, and hands in the name of God. It's taken from... Zadok the priest and Solomon. And it's so solemn and holy and serious and personal that a canopy is erected over the sovereign so nobody can see the sacred anointing. That's something of what's happening here. As God the Father and God the Spirit anoints God the Son as Jesus is announced as King. Can I just say theologically, it is not that at this moment Jesus is becoming God the Son. Jesus is eternally God the Son. But in a very real sense, it is at this moment that God the Son is becoming the Son of God because the Son of God is an Old Testament title taken from Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7, where God promises that a king will come of David's line to build the dynasty, establish the kingdom, and deliver the nation. Here, God the Son is being messiahs, crowned as the Son of God, Messiah. It is the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, where the servant declares that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him, Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. Here is Messiah. And it may be that you're listening into this as a skeptic. You're not sure about who Jesus is. And so many Americans today will say something like this, well, I don't accept Jesus as God the Son, Messiah, or anything as ridiculous as that, but sure, he's a a great moral teacher, and I love the Sermon on the Mount. Can I just humbly and uh, respectfully suggest that that is not open to us? C.S. Lewis puts it like this, There is no halfway house. No other parallel with any other religion. If you'd gone to Buddha and you'd asked him, are you the son of Brahma? He would have said, my son, you are in the veil of illusion. If you'd gone to Socrates and said, are you Zeus? He would have laughed at you. If you'd gone to Mohammed and said, are you Allah? He would first have rent his clothes and then cut off your head. If you'd gone to Confucius and asked, are you heaven, he would have probably replied, my son, you are in the veil of illusion. But come to Jesus, and he self-consciously identifies not just as God the Son, but the Son of God, I am Messiah, and how slow of you to believe. There's a final reason to turn to Jesus and keep trusting in Him. Not only is He the long-heralded King, not only is He the anointed King, last, let's notice He is sent as the rescuing King. I don't know if you followed this, but in November last year, um, Oklahoma's governor, a man called Kevin Skitt. Granted clemency to a convicted murderer, his name was Julius Jones. No relative, I ought to just to point out. <laughs> Maybe, but not, not sure. Um, but he, he commuted his death sentence just hours before execution. He'd murdered somebody in 1999. He said he was innocent and he had been on death row the whole time. The execution was scheduled for four o'clock that day His attorneys found a reason to get him off, and at 12.45 Central Time, while they were having their final visit and saying goodbye, the news came through that he had been pardoned. What is it then that this Massar king has come to do? In Isaiah 61, as Massar gets up, he says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to captives and release from darkness to the prisoners. So the mission of Messiah on earth is to proclaim the good news to the brokenhearted, and it is to fling open the prison doors, to open the cells, to let the captives free. So who are the captives? The Bible's answer is us. All of us, by nature, are captives to the judgment of God. Ever since the beginning, the whole of humanity has said no to gods. We have self-consciously said we want to be king of our own lives. We've pushed God out into the wings and shunted him out of our lives Altogether, There is a, an atheistic way of doing that, there is also a very religious middle class way of doing that as well. Just imagine if in Westminster Abbey I'd brought a hammer with me and I, I'd smashed that screen and then burst into the enclosed chamber and fat on the coronation chair myself. Just imagine what security would have done. It would almost be blasphemous. But that's what we do to God. We say, I will be God and king of my own life, destiny, and future. For that reason, the Bible declares that we are under sin and under judgment. Every single one of us, myself certainly, I deserve God's eternal judgment in hell forever. And the great promise of the Bible is that Messiah would one day come, this Son of God. And in Ezekiel 36, the promise is that when he comes, he would baptize with the Holy Spirit, bring a dead and rebellious nation back to life as he forgives our sins and makes us friends with God and forever. The skeptic will still ask, can this king do this? The answer is yes, Mark will show us he does it through his death at Calvary. Because as he dies on the cross, he bears our guilt and shame and takes the judgment of God that we might live and be baptized in the Holy Spirit and given the three great Fs, full forgiveness, friendship with a God who loves us, and a future in his kingdom forever. Yet the skeptic might still say, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that this king really can do this. Does he really have the power to deliver it? Or will it be like a candidate in the primaries? Well, the last thing that Mark shows us, and it really is to whet our appetites for next week and the weeks to come, is he gives us a glimpse into the incredible power of this king to restore creation and bring in this new hope. Look at verse 12 as the screenplay moves the director shouts cut and now we change scene completely as immediately the spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness and he's tempted by satan as soon as the king is crowned king there's no time for a reception in the palace there's no time for national celebration there's no time for a banquet As soon as he's crowned king, the king is on the battlefield with Satan. And it's the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 as he comes to crush the serpent. The question is, can he resist Satan? Jesus, out in the wilderness, a place of terror and judgment, and in between Judah and the Dead Sea is the most horrible desert in the world. It is actually called Jehissimon, Hebrew for devastation. A place of threat and terror, wild beasts, leopards, bears, jackals, snakes, and scorpions. And here is Jesus, verse 12, in the first skirmish, the opening shots, in battle with the devil, as the devil seeks to capture him. The commentator Paul Barnett puts it like this, this is no minor moral skirmish but Satan's full frontal attack on Jesus to capture his soul. Can Jesus resist Satan in the wilderness? Unlike Israel, who fell, he can. And what you see here in verse 12 is extraordinary. Not just the victorious Christ defeating Satan, but the new Adam. The new Adam come to rule a new creation. Mark says the wild animals are with him but there's no sense of threats. The creation is subjugated. Because Mark's point is that this is a brand new beginning. Sins forgiven, evil vanquished and a creation. This is is what we hope for, this is John Lennon's dream, this is the new world. Above John Lennon's house, that sign, this is not here, but above the kingdom of God, this is here. And if we're despairing this morning, we should turn to Christ and find new hope in him and his coming. Let's pray together as we sit. Our Father, we thank you this morning for this new hope that has dawned this new kingdom that is here, this new age which has begun. Help us to be those who turn to Jesus and find hope in him. Encourage our hearts. We ask it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.